All right, it's really good to see you today. It's a joy to come together as a church. I always love getting here on Sunday mornings and uh, seeing so many different people serving. I get here around 8, and uh, there are people who have been here for a couple hours already. I think Isaiah has been doing that for months now. So grateful to have Isaiah and his family back uh, and to partner with uh, the elders and ministry pastors here, and also thankful for those of you who are setting up chairs and doing so much. Really, really grateful. Also, uh, so thankful to see God um, raising up different individuals in our church to help us think about different ministries. So thankful to the Yangs for helping us uh, think a little bit about how to serve uh, foster care children. And I don't know if there's any update on, uh, did we almost get it? Oh, Praise the Lord, 50 backpacks, we're really close to being there, and there's going to be some backpack stuffing uh, this Sunday afternoon, so thank you guys. And then also thankful there was a group uh, who just wanted to get together last Sunday evening and talk about how to do outreach, and uh, it was fun to listen to them with different ideas about how we can take this gospel out and uh, serve the community, and uh, I know one of the ideas they had was to go to the park, to Lemon Park, and uh, be out and see how we can get to know people. So uh, looking forward to doing that. If you have any ideas or something that you're already doing that you would like a prayer for, uh, certainly you could see Ed or Evan or myself or really any one of uh, the other pastors and uh, give us the ideas that you're, uh, you have. Uh, but it's a joy to be a church and to serve, to really partner together for the cause of Christ. Uh, that's what we are. We're partnering together for the cause of Christ. And it's a, a privilege for us to be able to come and study God's Word. So if you'll take your Bible, if you haven't already, and open to the Gospel of Luke, you'll definitely want to have your Bible uh, open because we're going to be doing some work today. Are you, are you ready to work? Um, one of my main convictions as a preacher, I think uh, you'll figure this out pretty quickly, is that the Bible is more interesting than I am. The Bible is definitely more important than I am, but the Bible is also much more interesting uh, than I am. But sometimes it takes work to understand why it's interesting. And uh, today we're going to have to do, do a little work. We're at the end of Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 57 through 80. And uh, we're talking about salvation. So you could say that's our subject or our theme you remember from last week. And salvation means rescue or deliverance. So we're looking at Luke and talking about the way that God has acted to rescue us through Jesus, which obviously is a, a pretty important subject, salvation in general uh, for us, this, this topic. Doctrinally, uh, first of all, it's important because really our whole uh, religion is a religion of salvation. Uh, so uh, you take the idea of salvation out of Christianity and you don't have Christianity any longer. Uh, you mess with the idea of salvation and you mess with Christianity. So we need to be experts in salvation as Christians. If there's anything we need to get right, we need to get salvation right. It's that important doctrinally. But it's not just important doctrinally. It's also important practically. Um, we might not realize it at first, but the way you think about salvation impacts every other single area of your, your life. Or you could say it the other way. The, the way you live your life reveals what you actually think about salvation. 
Because the reality is everyone has a view of salvation, absolutely everyone. I mean, everyone knows there are problems in this world, and everyone wants to be rescued from those problems. So we're all looking for salvation. And there are a whole lot of different ideas about where we're going to find it. So for some people, they think it's themselves. Others, science, money, a relationship, government, something that will enable them to forget their problems. Everyone has a view of salvation, and as a result, there are all these different views of salvation out there that are constantly being promoted in the world around us, and the kind of salvation that you believe in makes a difference practically. It will shape the way that you feel. It will shape the way that you think. It will shape the way that you make decisions. So we're talking about salvation because Christianity presents a distinct view of salvation. It's actually different than anything that you'll find anywhere. And because the way that we think about salvation as Christians is important. And because it's easy for us, even for us, to get salvation wrong because there are so many views of salvation. So we have to make sure we think about it the way the Bible does. We have to try to understand it. And to understand it, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. Luke is explaining salvation. But if you've been around the past couple weeks, you know the way that Luke goes about explaining salvation is maybe a little different than we're used to. And I don't so much mean what he's saying about salvation, but actually how he's explaining salvation, because there are uh, different ways to try to explain something, obviously. So, uh, for example, there's the way that you would expect if I were going to explain something like salvation, how do you think I would do it? What would you expect me to do in our culture? You would expect probably an outline, maybe, uh, usually alliterated or a, a, a lecture, something like the Book of Romans, most likely which is important for sure. That is an important way to explain a subject, but it's not exactly the way that Luke's doing it here. He begins instead by telling a couple stories, which is probably not what you would expect. I want to explain salvation, so let me tell you a story. <laughs> because that's not how we typically think of stories and of their purpose, but stories do explain things, and the stories that we're told actually shape the way we think in some pretty significant ways. And you, act, you know that. <laughs> so uh, take the story of America as, as an example. America has a, a story, and we are told that story growing up. This is what America is. This is what America is about. Actually, if you uh, live in a different country for a while, you realize that the whole world is told a story about America and what America is about. And that story shapes the way we look at the world if we grow up here. And it has power to influence our thinking and our behavior. So if I talk to a group of Americans, I can pretty much expect them to think a certain way about certain subjects. And you can make that even more specific, right? Because actually, if you tell me the region of America people are from, I can have some guesses about what they'll think about certain subjects. And it's connected to these stories 
that they're told growing up about themselves, about the world, about how life works. And you know, it's very hard to change that once that story is embedded in their minds because stories are powerful. They have power to explain and influence the way we look at ourselves and the world in a way that I'm not sure much else can, at least not as profoundly. And so I guess it's not surprising that as Luke seeks to help us understand salvation, he begins with stories. That's the way he's going about this. He's telling stories, not just to entertain, but to explain. He wants to help us understand how we can be certain about what God is doing in this world through Jesus. That's what Luke is after in this gospel. And so far, of course, we're just in chapter one. So we're at the beginning. This is an introduction. But we need an introduction because Luke is making an argument. The gospel of Luke is making an argument. He, he wants to get you somewhere. He wants you to be certain about salvation. But obviously, if you're going to be certain about salvation, you need to know what kind of salvation that he's talking about. And so a big part of what is happening in this first chapter is that Luke is setting the context that is going to help you understand why he's writing the rest of the gospel and even telling the stories that he does. And he started out, you remember, uh, verses 5 through 25 with a story about a baby. But surprisingly, I guess, it's not the baby you would expect. He doesn't begin this gospel about Jesus with a story about the baby Jesus, but with a story about another baby instead, John the Baptist, verses 5 to 25. And one reason Luke does that is to get you thinking about the Old Testament from the start, because the significance of this baby is connected to all this history, and you've got to have all this history sort of swirling around in your mind if you're going to understand Jesus. It's kind of like, I heard an illustration recently, uh, it's kind of like Baby Yoda. Not really at all, of course, but I listened to someone recently, and I thought it was a little helpful, but Maybe you can remember Baby Yoda from the TV show Mandalorian, The Mandalorian. And if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, good for you. <laughs> um, I, I know I couldn't use this illustration in South Africa, but maybe I can use it here. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just give me one minute. But Baby Yoda was really popular a few years ago, and it was part of this TV show called The Mandalorian. And what you need to know is there's this baby, and he's uh, super cute for some strange reason. And everyone was fascinated with him and uh, wanting to buy the baby Yoda doll and all that. And yet, why was he so fascinating? Uh, because that's the part that's kind of important. It's because he was somehow connected to the Star Wars movies that went before. And so as you're watching this particular show, there was some mystery to baby Yoda, uh, to, who, to him and who he was. Like, where did he come from? What is he going to do? But while you're asking those questions, you had this other Yoda who went before him. And so you meet this baby Yoda, and you know he's important, and yet you're, you're not exactly sure why. But you know something is going to happen through this baby Yoda because he's connected to this whole other story. He's not just like a cute little Ewok or something. He's a Yoda. And you're trying to figure out 
what are the connections? Which is weird, I know that whole illustration. I'll probably never use it again because Baby Yoda is nonsense. But the one reason I like it is because it kind of illustrates how it is here in Luke. Because if you're going to understand the significance of the baby Jesus, it's like Luke is saying, wait, hold up. You're going to have to understand the story that goes before, which is why he tells the story of John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth in such a way that would get you thinking about all these other Old Testament stories. There's a phrase that's used for this kind of scene, this verses 5 to 25, uh, a phrase that's used to describe this that's actually really helpful. They call it a type scene. And a type scene is a scene that's important in the Bible and repeats throughout history with a lot of the same elements. So, for example, if you're reading the Bible and there's a woman at a well, you pretty much know what's going to happen because it happens a lot. And when it happens, almost always the, the same thing happens. Um, or, or barren women and a miraculous conception. That happens quite a bit in the Old Testament. And so how it works, these type scenes, it's a little like watching an old Western movie where the scene goes to the middle of a dusty old street and there are two men standing there facing each other. And you know, even if you just walked in and that part of the movie was on and hadn't seen anything that goes before it, you know why that's happening and what's going to happen, because you've seen it so often before. Or, or another way I've heard someone put it, it's kind of like music, how there are parts of some songs that are so famous, you hear that part of the song, and you, you, you just need a few notes, and you start thinking of that particular song. So a few years ago, apparently the Beach Boys were sued by Chuck Berry, because in one of their songs, there was a guitar section, uh, just a few chords put together a certain way, and they weren't hard chords and they weren't unusual even, but they were put together in such a way they sounded like the section of uh, Johnny Be Good. And that's a really famous song, apparently. And so when people heard those chords that way, they thought Johnny Be Good, even though it was a completely different song. And I'm saying that's the way it is with these stories. When you hear them, it's like you're hearing this part of Johnny be good. You almost can't help it. It brings all of these ideas into your mind because they're such similar chords. And so it's like when you read the Old Testament, there's a song about what God's doing in this world. And the way the song goes, you're expecting a baby to be part of how God saves the world. From the beginning, Genesis 3.15, you know a baby's going to be important. And then you get used to that baby coming from some lady who was barren and there being some sort of miracle involved. So if you think in terms of music again, that's the Johnny B. Good chord. You, you see a barren woman, you see an angel, you see a miraculous conception. You're thinking about a baby who's going to be part of God's plan to change the world. And now, of course, what a good musician would do is take those chords that are familiar and then change them a little bit. And that change then is going to be important. Or if you take the Western movie, what a good director would do, he would take the scene that you're used to and, and, and then have something different happen, something unexpected. And that's the part that's important for you to notice. And that's kind of what Luke is doing with this story at the beginning of this chapter about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's a type scene, and a lot of it's familiar, but there are differences. And one of the main differences is that there's not just one story, there's two. There's another story that comes after it, and there's another miraculous conception. 
And so this first miraculous conception, John the Baptist, is the one that's like the others in the Old Testament. And maybe as you're reading this story the first time, you're expecting this is going to be the baby who's going to change the world. And yet while he is going to be important, Luke quickly tells another story about another baby. And as he does, it's like he's contrasting these two babies. And in the contrast, you see the second story is even bigger than the first one. It tops it because this is not just someone who's born to an old lady. This is someone who's born to a virgin. And his name is Jesus. And so you want to know how significant Jesus is. It's like Luke saying, I'll take you back to the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. You thought that was something big. Jesus is bigger. This is going to be the baby who saves the world. Now, the the question is, what kind of saving the world are we talking about? He's the savior. Luke has introduced us to Jesus like that. But what kind of salvation is he going to provide? And having given us the stories in verses 46 through 56, and then verses 67 to 80, it's like Luke brings in two people to explain them. And instead of stories now, he uses songs or poetry. If you don't like narrative and poetry, uh, you're in trouble when it comes to the Bible, because those are pretty much the two major genres. Uh, And so we have to learn about narrative and poetry. But Luke brings in these singers to help us understand the stories. But first, he knows that both people are going to need some introducing, the people singing the songs, before we hear their explanation. And so in verses 39 through 45, he introduces us to the first singer or explainer. And it's a little bit of a surprise, you remember, because it's not the person we would expect to explain salvation at the start. And so he has to show us why it's important to listen to her. It's Mary, you remember, and we should listen to her because she believed. Luke tells us, verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then her song is verses 46 to 56. And it's not super specific, actually, but we looked at this one last week. And we said it's kind of a repeat of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. One of the joys of my week this last week was one of my daughter's youngest daughters told me she was uh, doing this in her devotion. She had Hannah's song out and she had Mary's song out and she was trying to compare the two and she showed me her notes, which was just a delight for a preacher dad. But Mary is explaining salvation and she's doing it by playing that guitar chord from Johnny Be Good, if you know what I'm saying. And as she's singing, Everyone would know this song sounds familiar because it it sounds like what Hannah sang after she gave birth to Samuel. And that's important because Hannah's song was not so much about Samuel. It was about David and God acting to give Israel the king it needed. And that's how Mary's thinking about what God's doing with Jesus. God is acting to save by keeping the promises he made long ago about bringing blessing through establishing this great descendant of David as king. That's the good news. And why is that such good news? She explains that it's good news because it's going to involve a reversal. And she uses herself as an example, how she was shamed and humbled in large part because of her relationship with God and how God was going to reverse that 
and bring her honor. That's the kind of salvation she was expecting for herself, and that's the kind of salvation she was expecting God to provide for his people Israel. She says she's rejoicing in the way God's acting to deliver them. And you remember, she's so sure of it, she speaks in past tense. She says it's going to be an exodus-like salvation. It's going to involve moral changes in society, the proud being humbled and the humbled being exalted. It's going to involve political changes as well. The mighty are going to be brought down from their thrones. And it's going to involve economic changes as the hungry are filled with good things. That's the, the first singer in Luke 1. Mary is expecting salvation to accomplish these incredible domestic changes in the nation of Israel. But she's not the only singer, because after having us listen to Mary, Luke brings in another singer. And this is the singer we want to listen to today. His name is Zechariah, and his song is verses 67 to 80, basically. But before he sings his song, Luke again does some introducing, verses 57 to 66. And of course, to a certain extent, Zechariah doesn't need introducing, at least not for the same reasons as Mary. Mary is not someone you would expect, but Zechariah is, partly because of what Luke's already told us about him, actually. Back in verse 6, Luke said, he was righteous before God, and he walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And those phrases together are quite a recommendation. That's the way Noah was described in the Old Testament, and Job. And Psalm 15 even says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell in your holy hill, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So if we're thinking Old Testament, Zechariah is a significant figure. And of course, he's also a priest, which means when he's not at the temple once a year, sacrificing and all that, he's back in his village teaching people about God and I'm sure about the Messiah. So this is someone you would expect to listen to, except... Of course, what's happened in Luke? He's been rebuked by an angel. And Luke has told us, he's made it really clear, that the thing that matters is that you believe, and Zechariah didn't believe. And so we're actually a little wary of this guy coming into verse 57, which I think is part of why Luke tells this story. First of all, he tells the story to confirm what the angel said would happen, happened. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, just like God said she would. Unbelief didn't stop it, so that's confirmation. And so is the next verse, verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Because what did the angel say up in verse 14? He said, and many will rejoice at his birth, and here they are rejoicing. So that's confirmation. And yet Luke could have stopped there with just confirming what God said would happen, happened, but he didn't. He keeps going with the story, and he keeps going with the story because he wants to highlight the change that's taken place in Zechariah. He says, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name which is kind of a funny story for Luke to tell. And you have to ask, why is he making such a big deal out of the naming of John like this? It's because he wants to show us that Zacharias changed. Next verse, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And here they're not too smart actually because 
Uh, it wasn't like Zechariah couldn't hear, uh, unless it was just because he was old, I guess. But this wasn't part of the judgment. <laughs> the judgment was only that he couldn't speak. He could hear, but still they're making signs. And Luke tells us he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And that might be part of why God didn't have uh, Zechariah call John Zechariah. Uh, this may be why God wanted him to be named John, because he wanted people to wonder, to recognize that something different is going on. But in doing so, he also gave Zechariah an opportunity to demonstrate that he did believe God was going to keep his promises. Because Zechariah believes, and what happens? Verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. In other words, his mouth wasn't opened the moment Elizabeth gave birth, which is maybe how we would have expected it to happen. This is eight days later. Because God's giving Zechariah an opportunity to publicly demonstrate his faith. And once he's done that, he's ready to testify. Then he's someone we should listen to. Doesn't matter how much you know, without faith, all that knowledge isn't going to do you any good. It wasn't until Zechariah demonstrated his faith that he was able to speak. And when he did, verse 65, it had an impact. Luke says, and fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then shall this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him, which again sets us up for whatever Zechariah is about to say. This is like a comet hit the earth, is the point. Something happened 2,000 years ago when these babies were born, and it was so obvious in the way that they were born that God was stepping in and acting that people actually became afraid when they heard about it. And they started wondering about the significance of these children. And so we need to know what is important about them. We've gotten Mary's explanation of Jesus, and now we have Zechariah's answer as well. And we can count on it as being a true explanation of what's going on because it's God's explanation, ultimately. Luke tells us that too, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Which is, I think, neat because now we've got the whole family who's been filled with the Holy Spirit the baby first, that was the first one filled with the Holy Spirit, and then Elizabeth, and now Zechariah. And, and filled with the Spirit here means he's speaking for God. And because of the verse before, we expect him to mostly be talking about John the Baptist, and he does eventually, but again, it's clear it's John the Baptist's relationship to Jesus that makes him significant, and specifically how God is acting to save through Jesus. In other words, like Mary... Zechariah's topic is going to be salvation. And you see that in verses 68 and 69. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And so that's how he defines the moment. You remember, uh, Mary and Zechariah are defining the moment. They're explaining the story. And that's how he defines the moment. This is God acting to save and he's going to explain a number of different things about that salvation in verses 69 through 79, like where it comes from, what it is, uh, why God's doing this, and, and how as well. Those are going to be our four main points, the where, what, why, and how of salvation, according to Zechariah. And what he's going to show us is that this salvation has international implications. 
So I've heard someone say, Mary focused on the domestic implications for Israel, and Zechariah is going to focus on the international ramifications. But before he gets into all that, he uses a number of different words in verses 68 and the beginning of 69 to help you understand the big picture of what he's talking about when he's talking about salvation. And the, the first word is blessed. You see it there. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And you wouldn't think of this word necessarily in terms of explaining salvation off the bat, but blessed is a significant word in the Bible. So if you go back to the beginning, the way the world is supposed to be, God blessed, Genesis 1 and 2, and then there's this curse, and it gets really bad until Genesis 12, where you find God promising blessing again to Abraham, and he repeats that word over and over there, bless, and the idea is that he's going to reverse the curse and bring blessing into the world through Abraham, and so some scholars would say what's happening when he blesses God like this, Zechariah, is that he's looking back at that Abrahamic promise and saying, God you have done it. You have acted to bring restoration into this world. You deserve blessing because you have blessed. And that's a good way of, of thinking about salvation. What we're talking about in general when we talk about salvation is God turning the curse into blessing. The second word he uses, uh, for he has visited his people. And these are important to pay attention to because they actually come up again later in the Gospel of Luke. But here he says God has visited his people. And visit here means God has come in a special way to show mercy. And this is, like I said, an important word in the, the Gospel of Luke. Even if you look down uh, at the rest of this song in, in verse 78, it talks about the sunrise visiting us. And that we're going to see is the Messiah. So here it is God visiting us, salvation. And then it is the Messiah visiting. And then later in Luke, you remember that last time Jesus enters Jerusalem, he weeps. And, and why did Jesus weep? He actually says why he, he was weeping there. What does he say? He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. But salvation, what is it? It's blessing. It's God coming in a unique way to show mercy. Third word, redeem. He has visited and redeemed his people. And I don't know if I can keep saying that every word is important, but really they all are. In Luke, how does Luke end? What are the disciples saying on the road to Emmaus? They are saying, we had hoped this would be the one to do what? I'm going to be quiet until I see one mouth move. It, thanks, Caitlin. It's going to be the one to redeem Israel. So this is key to how they thought about salvation. It is God acting to redeem. And what is that? Redemption. We could try to define it our own way, but how did they think about redemption? They had a whole book of the Bible to explain redemption. You know what Old Testament book pretty much defines redemption? Exodus. Exodus was the paradigm. And so when they say redeem, they're thinking deliverance from slavery in Egypt. That is the picture coming into their minds of salvation. God reversing the curse. God visiting. God delivering them from bondage. And the fourth word, it's not a, a word, but a phrase actually, in the beginning of verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. So God raised up a horn of salvation, and we know that horn of salvation is Jesus. In fact, he doesn't say technically here uh, 
say God is the horn of salvation. He says God raised up a horn of salvation. And horn of salvation, that's a word picture and not necessarily one we would use in our day. But we've got lots of idioms that sound funny in other contexts as well. This one makes more sense when you think about a horn, not like a trumpet, but an animal's horn. And so it's like a, a symbol of power. And in the Old Testament, the horn of salvation was God acting in power to deliver his people. So David in, in 2 Samuel 22.3 says, my God is the horn of my salvation. And yet Zechariah is saying here, God has raised up a horn of salvation who is going to act powerfully to rescue and, and we know, I know we know the end of the story. So we've got all that in mind as we hear Zechariah talking about God visiting, God redeeming, God raising up a horn of salvation. And, it's so, and so it's kind of easy for us to gloss over the rest of what Zechariah says, but we shouldn't. Because this is setting the stage for the rest of Luke. One of the, 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 the biggest obstacles to really knowing is thinking you know and actually only knowing partially. And so, we, it, so it's, if we, we, we have to look carefully at what Zechariah says so that we can make sure we really do understand what Luke is trying to teach us about salvation. And Zechariah here gives us the where, what, why, and how. First of all, where, and I just mean where does he see this horn of salvation coming from? He, he tells us, end of verse 69, in the house of his servant David, which is what we would expect reading the Old Testament. We know God's plan. In the Abrahamic covenant, it's blessing through Israel. And then in the Davidic covenant, it's specifically this blessing coming through a descendant of David. But it's kind of amazing, actually, given the context here, if you stop for a minute and think about it, because what do we know about what's going on in Israel at this particular moment as Zechariah is singing this song? Luke hasn't told us much, but the one thing he did tell us, and actually the very first thing he told us, beginning of the beginning of the whole story, verse 5, he says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. And you don't even have to know much about Herod, but one thing you, you should know about Herod is he's not of the house of David at all. In other words, I'm just saying this is obvious in the Old Testament, and it's actually obvious in Luke 1 in terms of the promise that it would come from the house of his servant David, this salvation. But it's not obvious historically at this moment that salvation is coming from the house of David because there is no Davidic king. It's actually been hundreds of years since they had one. And while they still had the genealogy somehow, Joseph, the descendant of David that we know about, what's his job at this point? He's a carpenter. I was trying to think of an illustration to give maybe a feel of what this is like, but probably David himself is the best illustration before he became king. Imagine if you brought David up and said, this is going to be the great savior of Israel. How did people respond to that before he fought Goliath? You remember what everybody's like, who are you talking about? Not him, because there's, there's no way. That's, that's Joseph. I mean, the house of his servant David, that sounds so dynastic, epic here. And it is obviously, but it didn't look like it at that point. That's the thing. And yet, you know what? That's the way God himself said it was gonna work. One of the most important prophecies about the Messiah is back in the book of Micah, Micah 5. You know this one, because uh, Matthew points it out. He says, but you, Bethlehem, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. 
That is Micah 5.2. But you know what comes before that? You have to go to seminary a long time to know this. Verse 1. Verse 1 comes before verse 2 in Micah 5. And what verse 1 says is that Israel's enemies are going to strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And he's talking about Israel being taken into exile and the Davidic kings looking like they are defeated and it looking like it's come to an end for the house of David. That's the point. The Old Testament predicts there's going to be a death of the Davidic dynasty. And then it goes on and says there's going to be a resurrection and it's going to start in Bethlehem. And Zechariah is saying, now here, God is keeping that promise. This is that. You know where salvation's coming from? It's coming from exactly where God said it would come from. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That is where. Now, now what? That's where what? And there are a couple parts to the what. The first is a little more general, verse 70. He, he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So, the word as, what does the word as mean when you say as? It's, it's a word you would use when things are similar. Sometimes you will use it to say, this is in, a, in accordance with that, or this is happening as that said it would, which is how it's being used here. In the Old Testament, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which tells you something important about the Old Testament, just that, Right? Because, sure, the prophets might have been talking, but God was really the one speaking through their mouth. And he was speaking about what he, he was going to do in the future for his people. And Zechariah is saying, this is that. This is in accordance with that. In other words, what kind of salvation are we talking about? You want to know? Open up your Old Testament. Read the prophets. They will explain it. But, of course, right now we don't have uh, time to do that. So we might ask... Zechariah, can you maybe quickly summarize what you're thinking about when you think about the salvation promise in the prophets? And he does in verse 71. He says, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And later on in verse 74, he says something similar, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And so it's important enough for him to repeat. And I guess you could come up with all kinds of explanations of what you think he means there by enemies, but... What he's talking about doesn't seem very complicated, does it? Enemies. He's thinking, he's thinking what? He's thinking salvation means Israel's going to win and going to be established as a great nation and isn't going to be under the rule of Rome anymore or any other evil nation. And where is he getting that from? Is he making that up? No. That is standard Old Testament stuff, right? You read the prophets, and there's even a phrase in the Old Testament that they use a lot to talk about the future. It's the day of the Lord. And, and you know what they expected on the day of the Lord? Isaiah 24, 21. You can write these down, look them up. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. Isaiah 34, 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of judgment for the cause of Jerusalem. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, how are you going to save? Isaiah 63, 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. 
I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I guess we could go on and on, probably. But the point is, Zechariah is expecting a salvation that's like what was promised in the Old Testament. And part of that salvation, we can see, is this day of the Lord where God steps in to defeat Israel's enemies, his enemies. And I just wonder, when you think about salvation, do you think about it like that? Just, just in general, does your idea of salvation include judgment on God's enemies? But more specifically, are you thinking about this day when God will judge Israel's enemies the way Zechariah was? Because if you're not thinking about that, you're probably not understanding a lot of what's motivating Luke because he knew what happened to Jesus, right? And that's sort of the whole question with this whole thing. The question is, if this is what Zechariah was expecting, it didn't look like it worked. But leave it there, I guess, uh, because we'll keep unpacking this. Where is this salvation coming from? the house of David. What is it? Fulfillment of Old Testament promises, Israel being rescued from their enemies. Now why? And, and this part's important because you might be thinking, what does all this have to do with us? I thought you said international ramifications. You're probably thinking that. And it does have something to do with us. Uh, when you look at why God's doing what he's doing. First, Zechariah says, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And Abraham is important here, that he picked Abraham as, as the father to talk about because he's connecting all this back, this, this judgment and this deliverance, he's connecting it all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. You remember that promise in Genesis 12? Which is similar actually to what Mary said in verse 55 as well, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. They both want you to think of the Abrahamic covenant. And what was the goal of the Abrahamic covenant? Do you remember? While we were doing all that study of the Old Testament, those five sermons, you're probably thinking, why is he doing that? I promised it was to get us ready for Luke. Why, what, what was the goal of the Abrahamic covenant? The Abrahamic covenant's in Genesis 12. And Genesis 12 comes after, this is the tough stuff, comes after Genesis 1 to 11. And Genesis 1 to 11 is all about the problems in the world. And then Genesis 12. So this promise that God makes to Abraham is God's plan for fixing the problems in the world. And this is what he says at the end of it. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So do you see what's, what's happening? God promises through Abraham... He's going to reverse the curse, and the whole world's going to be blessed, which is what, makes hap what happens to Israel so important because it's not just about Israel. It's about God blessing the world. And I think we get that if we look at what Zechariah says is the purpose of Israel being delivered from their enemies. In verse 74, he says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so this is God rescuing Israel to worship the way they're supposed to. And, and yet, why is that significant? To understand why that's significant, you have to go back to God's whole goal with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. You remember, God delivers Israel from Egypt. He redeems Israel from Egypt. Why? 
He tells them in Exodus 19. This was another one of those Old Testament sermons. He wants them to be a kingdom of priests. And what's that? It's a kingdom that represents him to the entire world. And that's part of why he gives them all these laws and why he was going to put them in the promised land so they can serve him without fear and be a blessing to the entire world. And of course, the problem is that they completely failed at that and were kicked out of the promised land. And yet again, the prophets step up later and what do they promise? They promise God is going to defeat Israel's enemies, bring them back into the land, and what else? Change their hearts. So Jeremiah 31 is an example. Write it down, look it up, listen to this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that, I broke, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And you should look at Jeremiah 32, 36 through 41 as well, but I guess we don't have time. But look, what is Zechariah expecting? He's expecting that God is going to rescue Israel so that all this would happen, so that they will be transformed like this. And what's the goal? Part of the goal is so that they can be a kingdom of priests and serve him the way they were designed to serve him and bring this blessing to the world. You put Mary's song and Zechariah's song together and you get the big picture. Mary rejoices because she knows as Jesus is established as the Davidic king, that will transform the nation of Israel. And then Zechariah steps in and praises God for the way that Israel's transformation will impact the entire world. That's where, that's what, that's why, now how, which is maybe where we get the first hint of the problem. <laughs> And also sort of a twist in, in the plan. But Zechariah is explaining what God is doing in this moment. And in verse 76, finally, he starts talking about John. And it's kind of funny that it's taken him to get so long to John. And yet that's how this whole song got started. Remember, people were wondering who John was going to be. But I guess uh, Zechariah hasn't talked in a long time. So it's not surprising when he gets the chance to talk, he's going to go on. And, and part of the point is... To understand John, you have to get the context for John. John by himself doesn't make sense. John makes sense in light of Jesus because at this moment, God is acting to save through Jesus and John is going to play a role in that. What role? Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So the Lord is coming. John is going to go before the Lord to get people ready for the Lord. That's how all this is going to happen. The Lord is coming. And the Lord there is, an, is Yahweh, God. It's, it's from Isaiah chapter 40. It's an illusion. But who is the Lord specifically in this context with John? It's, it's Jesus. So how is this salvation going to be accomplished? God is coming. And that's kind of a surprise because up to this point, we're thinking about him raising up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Zechariah said that. But now Zechariah is talking about John preparing the way for the Lord. And yet we're talking about Jesus. And so John is going to be a prophet who gets people ready for Jesus, who is somehow a descendant of David, and yet also God. 
And how is he going to do that? John the Baptist, verse 77, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. For the people to be prepared, they, they need knowledge of salvation. The people need to be prepared. And to be prepared, they need knowledge of salvation. And what's the knowledge of salvation about, more specifically? He says, in or through the forgiveness of their sins. And that's going to be a key concept. Because there's going to be a connection between salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And that connection is vital. Because we're going to see as we keep going in this gospel that the biggest problem with Israel is the same as the biggest problem with all of us. And that's not Rome or our physical enemies. That's our own sinfulness. And so obviously you can't establish this great perfect kingdom until the problem of sin is dealt with. There's no physical salvation that we're talking about with economic and political implications without this spiritual problem being dealt with first. And Zechariah knows that. And so he's thinking, how's all this going to happen? All this that I talked about. God's raising up this prophet John to get the people ready by giving them a knowledge of salvation. And yet, that's the first hint of the problem. Because what ends up happening if we keep reading this gospel? And I, I really want you to see this because it's so amazing how Luke all fits together. What ends up happening as we keep reading this gospel is Jesus condemns the people. And you know why he condemns the people? Because they did not know. They did not know. Luke chapter 12, verse 54. And this is in the section of Luke where Jesus is explaining why he's going to be crucified. And verse 54, he says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And you know what Jesus does right after that? After that? He says the same thing John said. He preaches the same message John preached about repentance. He calls on them to repent, and he gives them another chance to repent, but they won't do it. That's the problem. It's amazing, actually, if you look sometime at Luke 12, because Jesus says your problem is you don't know it's the time of salvation, but you do not know. And so let me basically repeat what John told you. I'm giving you another chance. Before it's too late, repent. And he even gives that illustration about the fig tree and, and not bearing fruit and the guy giving it some time. That was John's message, <laughs> Jesus is saying. The problem is you need to repent. And yet we see that's what they wouldn't do. They wanted the first part of Zechariah's prophecy, deliverance from their enemies and all that. But they weren't willing to listen to what John told them about how salvation worked. John gave them the knowledge of salvation, but they ended up rejecting it. And yet, coming back to Luke chapter 1, it doesn't quite seem like Zechariah knows that part of how the story goes yet, which makes sense because this is just the introduction to Luke, and he doesn't tell us the ending of the movie at the beginning of the movie. He just tells us the part we're in. This is the part before Israel rejects Jesus. And this is how Zechariah is explaining what God's doing in that moment. Israel needs to be saved from their enemies, and so God's raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David to keep his promises so he can fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and they can bring blessing to the world. And yet for that to happen, they're going to have to repent because that's the biggest issue. It's not their circumstances, it's their sinfulness. And John is being raised up to get them ready for Jesus by teaching them about the knowledge of salvation. And under those circumstances, 
Zacharias says, second half of verse 78, and that's the word whereby, really under those circumstances. It's a kind of a weird word, whereby. The sunrise shall visit us from on high because what does whereby mean? It means under these circumstances. What circumstances? With John out there preparing the way and John out there giving the knowledge of salvation, under these circumstances, he says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And from on high, that's the place where God dwells. So you see what just happened again. The Bible's amazing. Because this is what makes this moment so big. Because again, up to this point, before these verses, if you just read verses 68 to 75, you might kind of be thinking that Zechariah was just talking about some military deliverer, some descendant of David who was this great military conqueror, which was how most Jewish people were thinking it was going to happen at the time. That's how they thought God was going to save them. But here we see it's actually something bigger because, yes, this horn of salvation is being raised up in the house of his servant David, so he is Davidic. But look, that horn is also the sunrise visiting us from where? From on high. And you would never say that if that was just another descendant of David. Because on high is where God is from. So this is God acting to save through Jesus. How's this going to happen? God is becoming man and coming to visit his people, and he's called the sunrise from on high here. And there is actually like so much Old Testament information packed into that phrase, uh, though we don't have time right now. You can click on that link I sent you uh, in um, my weekly letter because it's amazing, that word sunrise. But we can at least see what Zechariah is saying. God is doing through Jesus in verse 79. He's, he's saying, we've got this huge spiritual problem. We're, we're sitting in darkness. We're in the shadow of death. And so God is coming. The sunrise is visiting, visiting us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And he did that, right? That's exactly what Jesus came and did. He, he taught, he preached, he gave light. And yet what ended up happening? And this is epic because God does all this exactly the way Zechariah says. But Luke 19, 44, if, if we just fast forward almost to the end, you, you turn there. Jesus is, uh, Zechariah said salvation is God visiting them, verse 68, here, that sunrise, it's, it's that sunrise visiting us, and yet he does that, and what happens in Luke 19.44, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and you know why? Because he says they're going to be judged, and the temple is going to be destroyed, and, and that's looking like the exact opposite of what uh, Zechariah was saying. Rome's going to actually basically come in, Jesus predicts, and wipe Israel out, um, in a sense. He's going to destroy this temple which is so different than it sounded in Zechariah 1, in Luke 1 with Zechariah. Why? Jesus says, he explains, for the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that's just incredible, I'm saying. That's the shock God visited them, and they did not know. And the thing is, they should have known 
because that's what John was doing out there. He was preparing the way for the Lord. He was giving them the knowledge of salvation. And because God himself was there visiting them, giving light, providing guidance, and yet they rejected him. And so the question is, now what? Does that mean it's, it's over? And again, I think if you're asking that, like I said last week, you're ready for the gospel of Luke because that's the question he's writing to answer. Because look, the, the salvation God promised is big. That is clear in this introduction. It's definitely not, you know, just go to church for a while and try to be nice to people and then die. And at least you, you know, maybe had a little nicer life than the people around you. God became man to do something huge, world-changing. What exactly? It's laid out there in the Old Testament, in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. It's, it's a reversal of the way things are. It's a descendant of David sitting on the throne. It's God's enemies being judged. It's God's kingdom being established. It's God's people being transformed and being a blessing to the entire world. It's all the nations benefiting long-term from the rule of King Jesus. You look at Luke 1, that's what Mary and Zechariah seem to be expecting, right? But here's the question behind the Gospel of Luke. What happens if John the Baptist comes and Herod beheads him? What happens if the Messiah comes and they reject him? Does that mean Jesus' mission failed? Spoiler alert, no, not at all. Luke says, you want to know how that's possible? Read my gospel. <laughs> Read the rest of the New Testament. But whatever you do, and I guess this is the main point, the takeaway, the application. Whatever you do, do not make Christianity and what God is doing through Jesus something less than it actually is just because it doesn't look the way you expected it to look right now. We are here to proclaim a salvation that is the ultimate solution to absolutely every single last problem in this world and universe. Economic, physical, political, social. That is how big our hope in Jesus is. But is that how big your hope in Jesus is right now? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We love it. We love that you've spoken. And you've spoken about things that are real and true in this world with so many opinions and noise and lies and deception and spin. We come to church and we hear you speak reality. Lord, open up these hearts. Holy Spirit, open up our hearts. Open up our eyes that we might see the hope that is ours in Christ. We pray what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. Strengthen us in the inner man so that we might know the hope of our calling that we might see the glory of what you have done and will do in and through Jesus. And that sight will transform the way we live right now. 
and the way we think and the way we feel. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.